originally produced by our team at Ingenuity Radio in 2002, Searching for the New Liberalism is a nine-part series adapted for this podcast, The Life of a Servant. Welcome to Part 7. This segment highlights social issues featuring Mark Podlosley, Tom Axworthy, Carolyn Bennett, Desi Ray McGraw, Boris Shisnevsky, John Roberts, Michael Kirby, and Dennis Mills. Some examples prompt the sketch when we're negotiating to give you a sense of uh, where we're at. Uh, the socioeconomic disparity between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people is a sketch when has created a powder in terms of public policies. Unemployment among first nations is five times the rest of Saskatchewan. Per capita, per capita incomes among first nations is one third of the rest of Saskatchewan. Over two thirds of the persons incarcerated in Saskatchewan are Aboriginal, although they form about 15 percent of the population. First nations children are two to three times more likely to come from single home family than their non-first nations counterpart and 15 times more likely to live in crowded conditions that is greater than one person per room. Per conditioning, persons in Saskatchewan are in much poorer health as well. The input mortality rate for registered Indian population in Saskatchewan are 2.5 times the national average, while the incidence of tuberculosis is 25 times the national average. About 30% of registered Indians over the age of 15 have been for working in their right term, compared to 7% of the reference population of Saskatchewan. Almost one-third of the registered Indian population living on reserve has less than a grade 9 education, compared to 12% for the Saskatchewan residents. The average annual income per capita for registered Indians on reserve is $5,400, as compared to $17,200 for the Russian population in Saskatchewan. Now, this, for the most part, is speaking about the situation on reserve, but as Marx has pointed out, the situation in urban centers is no better. The incidence among poverty, or poverty among urban Aboriginal people, is the highest of any population in Saskatchewan on permanent residents. Based on data from the 1996 census, Aboriginal people to be pride 23% of the poor population of Saskatoon, although they were 8% of the total population. In Regina, the proportions were 24%, and it's definitely If you were in the role of Delta HGI, developed by the United Nations program, it seems to trust a single measure of well-being based upon right expectancy education and income, and it's a familiar measure for Canadians because we consistently really see the top of that index. Uh, in 1989, federal government conducted a study to determine how First Nations would fare in such a task. In 1994, Canada ranked first among states. In that same year, the registered India, Indian population of Canada ranked 48. As for Panama, while the registered Indian population of Saskatchewan ranked 59, after Bahrain and just ahead of Fiji. The situation was getting worse, not better, because of the demographic pressures. 
fertility population is young. 64% are under the age of 20, as compared to 30% of the reference population. The median age of suggestion frustration population is 17 years, compared to 35 years for the reference population. As the success of the first taking baby boom approaches the labor market over the next few years, you see little holes of hope, you know, the total cost could be enormous. So right now, if you're a young, uh, hurting fellow in Saskatchewan, you've got a better chance of going to jail than you have of going to university. Saskatchewan uh, is the world leader. I'm on the G8 in terms of great gifts per capita, auto theft per capita, highest incarceration rate. You know, this is the social fabric out of society coming unglued, becoming ripped. And I wanted to say this because I don't think people have uh, properly understood what the case here. And while I use suggestion as an example, man is holding next door, has more or less the same demographic characteristics, the same population, the same movement towards the city, and the same lack of, uh, of um, children. Now, I want to point out that this isn't because the federal government is spending money. The federal government contributes uh, annually almost $1 billion, $1 billion, to first stage in the business of That compared with the provincial expenditure of the government of Gashin, that's done $6 billion. So we're pouring money in. So we're just not getting the result. And it seems to me that need to rebuild the relationship. And I have some thoughts about that, uh, but it seems to me the fundamental chairman which Mark spoke to was we need to rebuild our approach. And live thinking around here, and perhaps we'll speak out of that thing, is that we need to rebuild on the treaty relationship. Now, that's important because for most, most first nations, the treaty is the only consensual act they have between Canada and First Nation. It's a consensual act for First Nation, the foundation of their relationship with Canada. It is analogous to the terms of union to which the provinces ancient confederacy. There's a, a literature around this concept of treaty federalism. Which we might do well to love. So, for see their relationship with Canada as one of nation to nation. They, the elder, I mean, was deep with better to govern relations, founded upon the treaty. As opposed to uh, a colonial and fraternalistic Indian, which is an Indian, but essential. Now, this, uh, if we move to, to a more uh, Enlightened and perhaps more liberal approach to, uh, to Aboriginal policy, uh, it seems to me we're going to have to constrict, uh, looking at Canada perhaps as a multi-nation state. Uh, and, uh, which brings me to my second uh, point, uh, which is I think we need to, uh, gathering strength in Canada's Aboriginal action plan went partway in, in so far as the government of Canada said, you need a heart you're responsible for the disaggregation of your nations, uh, which have resulted now in some 638 year ban. 
And uh, we think, well, we want to help. We want to help you rebuild these nations. Uh, if, and if I were successful, there would be some 60 first nations in boom with arrival of 630s boom. And, uh, it's important here that we actually look to assist first nations in, in aggregating to either their very traditional model and, of course, the, the unit area of the nation, it just, agreement with the nation of people. Uh, but, uh, for example, the working successfully that I'm, I'm doing, I, we're looking there at, uh, at aggregating all the first nations in Saskatchewan, all steadily too. So you would have one province-wide first nation governance covering 73 first nation communities and representing 115,000 people. Now, there you can do something. There you can look at uh, in the first nation curriculum to make sure first nation students get to high school so they can get to university. Uh, there you can have a cognitive scale, you can have a efficiency where you can't in, in communities of 600 people. How the community of 600 people become self-governing is that a meaningful way to go. So, uh, a third, a third point that I need to move into is really to build on Mark Minecraft that our approach right now really doesn't address the, the situation with people living in urban areas. And there's several ways to do that. Uh, one would be to, um, to enable, uh, first nation to deliver, uh, program services in urban centers. And in our perspective for Saskatchewan, we're, we're looking at the possibility of, for example, having first nation school or home urban center. You know, so that the kids, uh, uh, if they move from, uh, reserves to city and, that you can increase it and they should move back and forth and they can, uh, hopefully, uh, be more effective in terms of, uh, continuing education. Uh, but a fourth area, I want to build on some of the things that Tom Ashley started in his remarks yesterday afternoon. And, uh, a theme which we're all commissioned when I listen to people, uh, I think that's what Trist on, and that is being a socioeconomic investment strategy for Aboriginal people. And we need it to be uh, a strategy that's tripartite. That is to say, this should all by Aboriginal people with the federal government and with the problem. To share this is the problem way too big for the Department of Indian Affairs to address, uh, never mind federal government's anything. And uh, if we don't make the investment, I think it's hurt. Well, let me put it this way. The rate of spending now is growing quite quickly. We're having zero impacts. So that our current, uh, the status quo is unsustainable. It's unsustainable economically, financially, it's unsustainable socially, uh, intergovernmentally and interpersonally. So it's not an option. And that's the change. We're going to see, uh, the, uh, intersocial, uh, risk that I was referring to. They're already seeing them. They're already seeing them in the data of a person in terms of, uh, of, uh, break-ins and, uh, and so forth. So, this is a, a big, uh, especially in the Western Canada, a very big issue which I think is not if we're all seeing, uh, governments uh, historically, uh, both federal and provincial have, uh, have not been very effective in, in dealing with this. It's always, uh, what do we do? Uh, it's not something that there's a quick fix for. Um, Bracket. I think the either uh, the TTP approach, uh, which uh, it's really based on a 
fundamental shift in our public policy. And uh, that, I think, nothing uh, else will, will be the job. Tom, I a big life scene for all of you, and I already have, I think, eight on the speaker's list, so I'm going to have now. Ladies and gentlemen, the, the transition points of your coastal channel, the panels we had yesterday, and the pipe that we're just about to emerge at last time, which they're talking about, can the system be moved uh, and the role of public to change and then institutional reform? One of the factors that was raised yesterday by some of our speakers, uh, those from uh, the generational differences, much discussion about networking and so on, and skepticism about the party system. And it was raised quite explicitly yesterday, what is the role of parties and what was Ottawa do that may need something to me. Parties organize public opinion. They sometimes believe it. They organize choices that influence public policy. So the full pretty important component, I think, of the reform agenda. But occasionally they need public opinion. Most usually they trample it and do a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Uh, to uh, engender support among a wide series of constituencies, uh, not teasing anybody, but not just teasing anybody too much. Uh, the issue that we had before us, and we just had an eloquent panel, just one issue on all the original issues, urban and poverty, uh, and we had many others, and Tony raised the health question without raising the, the cost issue. Um, it occurred all for in Sherry's general discussion about community and I took some things in my paper specifically about the children's agenda that I think they have a very major choice as we move forward in the choice of this. Can we realistically put in front of the Canadians a major investment strategy in a in my paper I talked about five areas. There's been some problems today. There's at least seven that we talked about. Big time problems which need big time solutions. Then we address that by going to Canadians to say, we want an investment strategy and together we're going to have to pay for it. And that is taking head on what has been the general political climate for the last decade around taxes. And saying now after Walkerson and after terrorism and after the crisis that people think is in healthcare, this is the time to move forward on an investment strategy. Or is that gamble too big? that we can't sell it. The most dreaded words in Canada are GST. Uh, and, and, but we have to be very caught in the right to responsibility. Those who are advocating major reforms have to be responsible in how they can finance it. We either go back into deficit or we finance it somehow. So the question I think before the House, without denigrating in any way these wonderful ideas which have come out, is we have to put the political, the connection how do we relate that to the party system? Can this succeed in persuading Canadians about a major investment strategy, which then implies a major debate on taxes? Or if that is too big, I'm not and we don't think that we can do it, then our second best response, I'm afraid, it has to be on a relatively limited fiscal base, not not totally bare, but at limited fiscal base, then how will we decide between Aboriginal poverty and health issues, and I made a case for an investment 
and foreign and defense policy or corporate taxes or social policy. What if we, if we have to put a choice? Can we persuade Canadians to go for an investment charity with all that implied? That is a big, bang political debate. Or do we have to then debate what are the trade-offs between all these good areas? We have to make one choice or the other. I'd love to hear from people about that dilemma. Yeah. There's some, there's some speakers who may be able to speak to this on the speaker because I would frame it differently myself and that I, I think that the two of the big things that we talked about Aboriginal and healthcare, we may already be spending enough on it. We just haven't had the nerve to do things differently, uh, because of all of the Ed Prov, Ridlock and all that. And I, I, I sure wouldn't be asking for a big investment strategy without us having the, the political will to do stuff differently and to, um, to work on results instead of how much boasts about how much they're spending on stuff. So, um, I wouldn't put another penny in until we're doing it differently. So I, uh, it, it, it's what happened to work in healthcare in the eighties. He spent all this extra money. You didn't get one miserable increase in access or quality. And, uh, and, and we took, we booked to do this differently. And what the justice going to be, I think, is the look at social justice issues. Is that the fairness part, it clears the claim because in they, we have to decide what are we prepared to see? What are we prepared to see? I don't think we want to hear that the core values, but when sure I've got to figure out a different way of doing stuff in every single town, whether it's the difference in an inclusive society in the community, that changed in terms of the learning in the health care, it's the content that changed, not the equality or the whether it's working. In the justice, it's things like legal aid getting people access um, to the justice system. They don't have original, uh, it's the cities, the cities that we didn't acknowledge and we're not being properly choked. I am um, I, not seeing a different question. Are we prepared to do things differently? Tom Drowsing, I'll be prepared to do a big huge investment. And Charles Cassie, you're the first to be our podium here in terms of uh, uh, your observation. So as I have, Charles Cassie, Robert Green, Hill, Desiree, Boris, John Robert, Heeman, um, and then Peter wanted another go at Graf, Peter and she, and then it has been yeah. yeah, not yet, no. What I have to thank you is gone from going down to the over you know, 10 and less to than what I hear there, and so probably the point that it's still still quite evident that it has been said here to me that this was first called the human personal liberty in Canada, is that you put it term. And then, whether it will be a new liberalism or just liberalism in the future, I don't see the need for new liberalism, but it should be fine. Um, it will be based, it will fall again on it, personally, no doubt it will be in my mind, and it's only based on what can be from a practical experience got you there. The whole whole base on one long, not on continent story, uh, nor just from personal observation. Um, and it is, and therefore the conclusion from that observation is that having been the fantastic 
congregation, the church, GRF, Warrior, the CPT, you name all of them. We all need to address the unfinished shop. The much big fullest, big fold for liberalism in Canada, namely home care and family care and child care and much parent and leader improved. If you've already been constantly needing committees that it is here, a new Canada Fiscal's Grant, and then a new round of news and everything the program. So this is why I like very much what I heard this morning from Sherry Gordon and the old team of his countries for the public work. And also what I heard yesterday on, um, on social cohesion from Bruce Besser. Because, um, he convinced that good economic performance depends on, on the Christian world. And even investment now with white federal commissions are attracted by good housing, good hospitals, good connecting transports, good cultural activity, good parks, healthy water, breathable air, you name it. So the advantages that are to be derived from the economic side of human activities are dependent increasingly for on the cost of reform. The person here will run on sharing, but somehow our sharing in the sense is real threatening. Now, coming out to Tom's question, which is a central one, and it crossed my mind also yesterday, all the Zonlandi has put that question to people, well, in ancient age, uh, revenue radicalism, and how do we go about them in, uh, in doing, in progressing with our agenda? And um, my quote in Asia too goes uh, to the fact that uh, we, we do not help governments, we do not help the social agenda, we do not help progress when we introduce trash cuts. Trash cuts mean uh, government cuts. And so the neoliberalism, it seems to me acting it up its hands. Well, it wants to please everybody to pay taxes. Not those who don't pay taxes because they can't afford it, but just those who pay taxes to be given a few extra dollars, but at the same time, reducing the capacity of dominance and the capacity of unitors who are desperately seeking for funds in order to do what they think the public wants. And so, if there is a choice to remove uh, the cost of the social agenda, which to me, is not a cost, but it is basic kind of since very well, this is a basic benefit, then it has to, uh, it has sooner to be caught by being more careful with this current low sooner, which are seen anti-Ibron even, also reducing taxes. There are $100 billion that are being lost in this current five years in revenue because of such costs. And whether the future of liberalism will want to please the taxpayers again, um, it, it depends on, on, on this type of decisions, a considerable amount of money. Also, I think that the future of liberalism depends on our ability to convince people that actually good substantially is good for society. And then eventually God's own friend. Thanks. Well, um, to Tom's question, I, I agree that there don't need to be more investment, but there needs to be investment of thinking. There needs to be investment of courage. There needs to be investment of the political capital. There's no trouble. 
I am very skeptical there needs to be an increase in investment in money. Perhaps, perhaps what we should do is say at the end of the day, when we really have invested all those other ingredients, we should then be prepared to commit the funds necessary to have a society legally even. But money maps mediocrity. Um, what we need to be careful about is that whatever it is we're investing in is we're investing in country that is truly excellent. And uh, that would be my point uh, to answer your question, which is I'd be very careful about what we're applying that address in the deeds and what we mean by it. But sure, time, effort, debate, courage, political capital, and that brings me to the us on the panel of coordinates. I thought it's easier for Elsterham speeches and the current answers are superb and lots of new ideas. And uh, I wanted to mention speaking to Mark uh, because I thought it was a stretch and innovative perspective that tied very well into what we've been talking about yesterday about global engagement and this idea that there's a continuum of community across borders and frontiers. And uh, we were talking about that from the Canadian diaspora. And so, Michael, your, your comments on traditional people, that same element, and being able to go out and find different perspectives, skills, and so on that can be brought back to the communities while having the reserve acting as an entry point in terms of values, in terms of culture, and so on. Actually, I thought, uh, paralleled very well what we've been talking about yesterday. And in a sense, I was also a very optimistic and forward-looking view of the resilience of our community, particularly out of the box, saying this is, has, we shouldn't be thinking about Aboriginal people doing it in the box of the reserve. We should be thinking about how we engage with them and support their aspirations, regardless of the geographical positioning. That actually brings very true to what we were thinking about what Canadians, how we, we, we should be keeping ourselves in this box, saying, if you're a good Canadian, you stay here. If you're a good Canadian, you're going anywhere in the world, you're getting that perspective, you're bringing it back to this country. And so I thought there was a great parallel there. And, and I hope over time, these can two elements of engaging across the frontier come up with some specific policy suggestions. So thank you. Um, actually, just taking up a large point um, in terms of the ideas, the lack of ideas and investing in assurance. Things seems to me to adapt to our government and the party and Canadians is that the government sort of won't be the party of the source of time, volunteer time, money, but not a source of ideas. And I think we've seen the whole policy process in the party completely undermine uh, subsidiary to leadership and other concerns, which are important, but they should not trump drawing uh, on the party for ideas. So I think that is a huge one. And there's a book I'll have where I'm sitting called The Ingenuity Graph. I hope. Everyone in this room reads it. Uh, Thomas Homer Dixon, Pat Homer Dixon, but the writer of this conference did not make it. But basically what it looks at is the increasing gap between the problems that we're creating economically, socially, environmentally, and our lagging ability to adapt. Um, so I think that's a huge problem for this party, for this government. And um, anyway, so I do recommend it. Specifically on Tom's question about investment. Uh, I spoke yesterday about Kyoto as one example really to witness how on environment and to some extent sustainable development issues. Perhaps my presentation should have been part of this channel and Peter perhaps you should have spoke on the first channel. But it seems to me that the social agenda, the economic agenda, the environmental agenda, all of these fall under sustainable development. And so I have to say, 
It's a new liberalism. And then you pay for you to talk about the environment. Do not include the environment. This is not part of liberalism. This is not something I want to be a part of. And one of the reasons that the next generation, I'm not talking myself, I'm talking about my students. Don't want to have anything to do, for the most part, with political parties, with this party, I and mean, political parties and power making law have a monopoly on politics. My students are extremely politically engaged, but completely outside the formal party process. And we are leaving for best and the greatest. Hard to adjust them in, hard to keep them, because we are not addressing the issues that are of concern to the next generation. And I'm sorry to say, sustainable development is the over- overarching framework. It's environment, it's development, and it's, of course, society. And that really, I hope, what a major underpinning of the new liberalism is. In my, it, you know, some of you studied to run the School of Economics. We see, to some extent, the Tanulism is a pure goal, which feeds certain aggressives and values we own, but the means we can be rather flexible and innovative in achieving those. So, I just want to, you know, I spoke about the other lecture today, but the real point is sustainable development is really helpful from the cost and extra stressful. We're losing the next generation because of it. We've got to bend the program. And um, on the farm, well, we, we've got to get with the program and creating the program. And I just think it's been a major oversight. I think it's wonderful that conference is happening. And it's one of the first times that as a member of this party back, you feel that there are other liberals who want to talk about issues and not just leadership or tactics or organization. Seems to me this is bringing where we should be going. And this is how we're going to bring in the next generation, not by selling a bunch of membership forms, but by talking about issues that the next generation carries about. So I'm sorry if even not a speech for all. It has to cross generations in this room. We all love to give speeches. And unfortunately, we've all been giving a series of speeches, including myself, and we haven't really been engaging each other in debate. I don't really see how we're going to move forward unless we start challenging each other and having a real debate around this table. I just want to thank you for saying that. In the, in the healthcare debate, the, the thing that has the most revenues of anything I ever say is that you want clean air, you want more poppers and respirators, and every senior stands that we actually just have to go on the clean air. It's part of a sustainable health care system. And, and there's, you, there's a series of hikers we can ask people for, and, and we have to actually be touching what the industry already know about what the follows of government in the blue block down this way just aren't touching because we, we have everything organizing all of these other ways, and particularly the socioeconomic tug of war where we used to have our cocoa policy caucus at the same time as the economic policy pocket until we said we shouldn't be doing it anymore. And so, uh, anyway, I thank you because I, I don't know how we can do this that we get more debate, but maybe we'll be a challenge to the afternoon in terms of, because it, it's, uh, and yet a speaker versus him, it's very difficult for enough people to respond to what the other person just said. So, Boris, do what you can do. My name is Boris Amy presentation this morning, there was a trade that caught my attention. She talks about poetry and public life. And in most of the presentations, 
during this weekend, we can provide you with a great deal of empirical data that helps us focus on our successes and also a lot of our failures. But politics is not only a science, it's also an art. And perhaps in our search for a new liberalism, we should, or in another phrase, not only reclaim our humanity, but look at redefining our humanity in a new coastal charter. And this perhaps addresses the dilemma that Tom talked about. We have five or seven areas that we know. How do we develop the public? The public that's used to talking about the numbers and chances. And this is where we touch upon, once again, this church. Perhaps what we need to do when we look to putting together a new social charter, we need to write it in such a way that it inspires all of us, whether it's the lawyers among us or their 10-year-old sons. And when we stop playing the game of politics and perhaps look to our role as being the art of leadership and are able to put together a new charter, a social charter for our party. We'll be able to solve some of these great problems that we're facing today. Thank you. Uh, my name is John Albert. I'm, I want, first of all, to say how strongly I would endorse the remarks of the jury, but I'm really here to make a brief comment on Peter Barrel's uh, paper which I like very much, partially because of its emphasis on diversity and tolerance as a simple characteristic of liberalism, and partially because of the resistance to the developing idea that individualism and society have a right not to have their feelings here. Uh, John Stuart Mill will be turning in his grave. Uh, I, I agree I, I, uh, I agree with him about the logic of the standing clause. So given the rigidity of the Canadian Constitution, I don't see that really practicable, uh, at least in, the, in any reasonable future, most otherwise, uh, that uh, it could be changed. Though I can't help but comment that if only Tom Axworthy and I had our 20 years ago, these problems would never have arisen. <laughs> Um, but I, I really want to urge uh, uh, those of you who, like me, uh, don't need footnotes because the print is so small, uh, to look very closely at a long footnote in his filter, which is about uh, legal aid and the administration of justice. It seems to me that the fundamental principle underlying Medicare is that your access to fairness and medical services it's not to fill the Commonwealth income. It seems hard to me to believe that the system is blessed. It's not as important as the delivery of medical services. Uh, I mean, uh, yes, I think it is almost incontestable uh, that any Commonwealth, you like, financial resources, does have an impact on the fairness of the decision to the justice system that's probably constituting delivery. It seems to me that the logic would. Homage working there with an enormous difficulties in relation to Medicare is a, 
is going to start to apply to this question with traditional administration and justice services. And indeed, I can continually say that in Google's report from the world, there's continuing growing concern about this. So I don't think that that concern is generally determinative in the society. Uh, I think this is an extraordinarily important issue. Uh, I think it would rather we see it come more and more uh, to the forefront. And uh, I think Peter is right that there's a need for someone somewhere to sometimes tune charts to hold a conscience on the book because you can occupy a whole something. But a good start is the footnote, the long footnote that he's written, and I urge you to pay attention to it in this paper. Uh, Carol, I'd, I'd like to make uh, two comments on my health care. The first is that uh, our health care system is good when you compare to the U.S. You have driving rights in the U.S. But we don't have driving rights uh, in, in the context of the world. We are in the average position of the ACD countries in terms of how much we spend and what we get in exchange for that. We don't have a, le a leading role in the world. We have to do quite a few things. And this leads me to my second point. I've fully endorsed the idea that what we have to do is do things differently rather than do throw more dollars at a problem. Um, the kind of uh, problems we're facing in healthcare in Canada are almost identical to the kind of problems we're facing in almost all the other countries. And there's an emerging tool of thought that trade, perhaps the best way to deal with these problems is to put much more emphasis on preventions rather than curative methods. Uh, when you look at the uh, healthcare systems that we have, all, almost all of them are not really healthcare systems that disease control in the sense that there's a lot of money to be made in disease control. Doctors uh, get so something to work, or hospitals get to be filled. And there's very little rewards uh, associated with presenting. A hospital bed is often in features like a, an empty, an empty hospital bed is seen like an empty hotel bed, which means inefficiency. You have to fill it up. And uh, this uh, perverse logic with the business system is because there's no uh, dollar value attached to them. It's a, what, when the dollar value attached to presenting, it would be a complete digital test. I would argue that one of the aspects of the new would be to move towards the health system as opposed to the disease control system where health would be actually measured in the growth domestic product, uh, which is not not, and which completely biases the system in the wrong direction. And from that point of view, I think Canada should become uh, not only a leader of the United States, but a leader in the context of the whole world. Thank you. Hey, great. Wonderful. Um, I just wanted to address Tom's um, questions about um, the talks we've been having, trying to mobilize public opinion along with our large investment or around, or instead having the ability to choose someone um, a competing for priority. This may sound like a very liberal middle of the road thing to say, but I don't think it's kind of a real point. The reason I say that is that no matter how much money is pumped into the system, you will always be left with a, a, a choice between competing priorities. And the, the ability to bond can also be described primarily the allocation of scarce resources amongst unlimited subjects and arms. The only, the only way we could avoid those sorts of times of basic concerted is if there were unlimited resources available to government, which clearly is not likely to be the case either in Robert or my, my lesson. But um, the second question around the earlier question around how we, is it feasible or is it desirable 
trust, you try to mobilize public opinion um, to create a public up chance for a large share investment in, in the social, social program, in the social program. I would say that um, my feeling is that, my own feeling is that it would be extremely difficult to mobilize public opinion around the idea of new investment, both and especially around investment, both the negative and the positive. From uh, the negative perspective, and I'm, I, I think anyone who, who wishes to, to understand public opinion has to grapple with the importance of the fact that they're right for the university to die. And from that perspective, I'm, I'm indebted to um, my son, Mike Green, for his, his um, survey, showing that the majority of Canadians do not know what will. In the, co- in the context of that, trying to lead Canadians to conclusion based on presenting them with numbers. Of the magnitude, even though I think he's successful. But from the positive perspective, I think Canadians are likely to get struck about suddenly significant of our friends in terms of just, in terms of inherits rather than in terms of output. Because they are, in reality, most Canadians govern their lives and expect governments to govern themselves. They float so much on how much they're going to spend, but what it is they're going to achieve. And it has been one manifest area, I would say, uh, in all government departments over all time. It has been that the budgets are designed around interest rather than around output, around um, less, more around how much money they want and how much money they will spend and where they will spend it, rather than what value is being tested for, for, that, for that expenditure. And indeed, I would say that what crashes for accountability today in government tends to be an assurance of the extent money is already said we were going to spend it. Uh, real accountability should be how we achieve what we said how much to achieve. And indeed, are there other miserable results tied to the achievements, tied to the funding that's provided for each department? But more broadly, Trailrail, um, I do think that political parties have the authority to mobilize public behavior around social objectives, around what is it, what is the need to achieve and what kind of the designs that they want to have. That's one of the reasons I believe that healthcare has become perhaps the preeminent social policy issue in Canada. It's not simply because in terms of Canadian liberal values about compassion care, and not simply because every Canadian can imagine himself or herself needing to avail themselves of the healthcare system at some point. It is because of the healthcare had become an almost symbolic social policy issue. It, it symbolizes the belief that most Canadians have that their interest as individualists is inextricably linked to the well-being of every other member of society, and that's and that the key essentially Canadian also say that citizens can also in the long term rise above one another, they have to ride with one another. Uh, and I do believe that political parties not only have the ability to move opinion and move opinion, but they have the unique ability to do so. Because what I, I certainly take that as a great point that um, it is a tragedy that many of the doctors and the brightest in, in Canadian society are finding political stress and outside of the political process. But the unique contribution that political parties have to have the nature of political sources and the contribution that you must, must not be tried by articulating is that political parties are the only entities in society that seeks to understand and seek to regard the totality of the public interest. And in a, in an increasingly pluralistic society, it is not merely possible, but in other schools, that equally the different instances will sometimes be great. And for making progress on any one aspect of any one person indicator means having both the courage and the foresight to understand all social indications. And there is no no organizations out there that you know the world organization of national industry. 
that actually see how I've been perfectly to advance the technology for public interest other than political community. Thanks, Picarca. I, I think it's another conference for Tom to organize and it just the whole accountability thing, I think, and the, and the cost of government team, that it can actually think it for those that our quality of life. We've got to actually be measuring that and be accountable for the results we get across government departments. And I know Treasury Board's trying to do this, but I would see that new liberalism is figuring out better ways to measure how we're doing across all of government on the things that are in our brochures, uh, uh, cleaner air, healthier populations, uh, of safe retreat, how are we doing that across the whole of government with the little pockets of money that come across from government departments, and how are we accountable for those results that really are about the quality, and how do we look at the disaggregated data, like like David Hawksfield, um, that when you know that the Aboriginal people are, are, are down at 48 compared to first, that, that, that is the way that we appeal to Canadians about their insurance into Toronto. And that they, they know that that's not working and they, and it's how we get back in terms of the core Canadian values, which I happen to believe are liberal values. So, um, it's Michael Kirby. I was, I was sort of afraid to, um, to come to the mic as a, as a former recent based runner on Jerry. I thought you might think my commentary is longer than the original paper. Um, so I will, in fact, uh, try, try to be very brief. Uh, and trying to uh, comment on uh, the healthcare paper are worth reading, provided that you understand uh, the terminology. My concern was that the paper uses a lot of terminology which is used in the public parlance, but not, uh, in fact, uh, correct. And so I, I just wanted to sort of clarify a couple of points. Throughout the paper, Antonio uh, talks about the public health care model. Let me be clear, they don't have a public health care system in Canada for, if for emphasis is on health. We have a public hospital and doctor system. And hospitals and doctors are now 46% and rapidly declining as a portion of health care expenditure. And so uh, I think it's important when you discuss uh, issues related to the role of government in healthcare that you decide whether you're talking about healthcare or whether you decide that you're talking about hospitals and doctors. So uh, I think it's important when, when uh, we make presentations that people uh, were very clear over time I think. But the second observation is, is directly to run the word public. Um, throughout all of the uh, legislation going way back to the origins of uh, the 1957 uh, Public Health Insurance Act, uh, all the way through the Canada Health Act, the word public deals only with funding. There is no piece of federal legislation, including the Canada Health Act, that says anything about the ownership structure of delivery institutions. Unfortunately, uh, for all kinds of reasons, various special interest groups have taken the word public, or hungry, the word private, and try to infer that the Canada Health Act and other things deal with the ownership structure of delivery institutions like hospitals and clinics when in fact there's no constraints on that at all. And therefore when Antonia and I wrote her phrase down when she says that some of the recent developments in Alberta, and I assume she's referring to, uh, for example, the recent clinics that are still out there, uh, and her words were stretch the flexibility as a public model. They do nothing of the sort. 
they may well split the flexibility and indeed may well violate the Canada Health Act on the issue of equal access, but they do nothing and say nothing about uh, violating any rule on the issue of whether they're public free or privately owned. Um, so the equal access is an issue, but the ownership is not. And by the way, just as your time, uh, on the equal access issue, one of the most sort of wonderfully misunderstood um, elements of the Canada of the Canadian healthcare system is the uh, Working Compensation Board, the Workman's what is it, Working Social and Safety Board, WSIB in Ontario. Um, openly violate the Canada Health Act because they were explicitly excluded when the Canada Health Act is set up. If you really want to see a future system operation, go and find out how people are treated who are injured and subject to being paid for by working compensation board. To they get uh, the doctors who are paid for treating WSIB patients for the working compensation board patients are typically paid two to four times more than the doctor's paid for exactly the same operate procedure in um, the public system. And uh, they're also, uh, in provinces, we tax on doctor's income. If you see the WCB patient, it, the, the income you earn from that doesn't come under the cap. So so there is an equal access issue. Um, the third, uh, third and third point I want to make, and then I'll stop, relate to uh, two points in front of me, maybe she's dead on. Uh, the first is, well, there is a, there is a perceived crisis in politics perception is reality. Uh, and secondly, and related to that, that the, that the crisis is really related to the waiting line issue or the waiting list issue. It's not related to service. Repeatedly, once you're in the system, the perceptions of service quality are easily high. Are they perfect? No, they're not. But if you looked at them compared to any other complex industry and looked at customer service, Satisfaction ratings. The service ratings are are um, are pretty good at the access issues issues with a lot. Uh, the second point she made is the accountability issues. She's dead right on that. Uh, what we're seeing between both the federal government and the provinces is the the classic exercise of politics is the art of shifting the blame. Um, the the provinces in their new sort of object continue the rhetoric that. Uh, that 14% of healthcare expenditures uh, are paid for by the federal government. Uh, they, when they say out by the right, they mean hospital and doctor. The federal government uh, argues it's 40% or thereabouts. When the feds use the 40%, they're talking about healthcare. They're not just talking about hospital and doctor, although they all use the same terminologies. Um, and by the way, neither number is essentially correct. I mean, you can, if, if uh, their lives, them lives, and statistics. And you tell me the percentage you want, and I can conjure up a way of uh, delivering you um, that number. So uh, it brings me back, I guess, just a one final comment on the question Tom put and Farron's comment. Um, it does seem to me that uh, although Farron tried to support the review and Tom's were different, uh, I don't believe they are. Farron's dead right when she says she wouldn't put more money into the healthcare system. Uh, I would have added the words as it is presently structured, which is, I think, which is what she meant. You said, you, right. Yeah, the, the reality is that if more money is put into the health care system, it must be used to buy things, and that issue Sharon's did on. Uh, on Tom's issue, uh, you can't restructure any industry, let alone the health care industry, without more money. And therefore, you require an investment. I mean, that, look at any industry restructuring that's taken place. 
uh, across North America during the 90s, uh, and you will find restructuring is an expensive proposition. And therefore, I would say that the common trail and lawn are uh, exactly uh, the same page. And so uh, the debate that will take place in this century, the Senate Committee uh, report will be out the last week of October, the, uh, the Governor Committee will be out the last week of November. Uh, they will then, I presume, because I have a sensation that the tree will not necessarily fall in fright on some of this information. Um, there will then be lots of room for public debate. Uh, and I would only ask when you're, when you're reading what people say that you, you, uh, listen carefully to the code words and try to decide if when they say health, they mean health, uh, or a hospital and doctor only. When they say public, do they mean, or when, excuse me, when they say private, are they talking about private delivery or private funding? One of which is Hebrew in Canada, one of which is not. And finally, that we engage in the debate. Uh, that I would take that Tom and Carolyn both put forward, which is vaccinating to fact the poll to poll should change your system to deliver the things that they said they, or that they all polls would indicate that they wanted to deliver. And this will be the central social policy issue, in my view, uh, of the next year and certainly leading up to the next budget. And it's an issue which, frankly, I hope a lot of me participate. What kind of income matter? Hold on. I would confer that the, uh, that the, uh, the native situation in Manitoba seems to support one, and everyone has to look at your source and your with it. But, um, there's been a lot of talk about, any real coaches that I'm using, like, not using money to make changes. I'm going to propose a couple of, uh, things to think about this. I think they're too, a little bit too radical to accept the idea, but tell me about it to think about. I'm a native policy. I would recommend that these recognize that the native have a unique Ethnic background, a unique position in Canada, and uh, you should also you also recognize that they are a very disadvantaged group. I would suggest that we include them to be Canadian features of the unique ethnic group, teach them as a disadvantaged people, but make them whole Canadians. In other words, put them in the same status as other Canadians and deal with them on on what type of Canadian they are. To treat them as a separate people is leading us to disasters. Sounds very good. It's very idealistic. Oh, yes, to have those PG and so on. But it is leading us to a real disaster in the future. I would recommend the local to con contributing, changing this pattern. And it truly takes from untucked things, but this would, will get us results where I don't think anything else will. On the matter of health care, similarly, you have a suggestion to start discussing something else. Um, health care has become a money building. People, Look up making money when other people get sick. Now, they may still have prevention and have no diseases, but that will not happen very soon. So we got to look at a way of dealing with the diseases that we do have. And in the past, we had, we had, very health care was not based on money as much as it is today. Doctors worked long hours, cleaned up their house calls, but paid very little. There are thousands of Canadians that want to help people that are not that concerned about money. We should try to get these people into the health system. There are a lot of them that want to train. There's young people, they can't quite afford to go to the medical college, but they want to help people. And there are other health care workers. There are NGOs, community groups, churches, and so on. They used to run the hospital very efficiently, very well. If you want to get a lot better health care system than we have now, with very little money, we should try to get a way of getting these people back in there and having them run it rather than run it for money. Uh, Tom, I would like to uh, 
address your point. I think they have to uh, make all of these investments. And because if you don't make them now, we're going to pay 10 times as much down the road. The question is, where are we going to get the money? Now, in the greater Toronto area alone, we spend $22.5 billion a year. Even though the Toronto Star will say that the Toronto federal members of parliament are missing in action, the reality is that the government of Canada presence in this city is phenomenal. Problem is that we have two cultures in Ottawa right now. We have a political culture and we have a bureaucratic culture. And the sad fact of the matter is that the bureaucratic culture and their priorities are deciding where that money is flowing. Now, every now and again, politicians will have to know where Patrick is going in his or her writing. But the reality is there are hundreds of millions of dollars that are being spent on things that are not liberal priorities. Now, to substantiate this, last January, I asked every deputy minister in the government of Canada, I want to know where this money's going in your department. And as of the security uh, meeting we had last week, I could only get 10 of that $22.5 billion. Now, I'll tell you why I don't know where that money's going, because they don't want us to know. Because I have received envelopes from people who are bureaucrats are embarrassed, but we're giving millions of dollars to chartered banks who are making millions of dollars. We're giving millions and millions of dollars to foreign multinational food processing companies. There's not a liberal in the caucus or in this room that would vote to give that kind of money out. Well, I say on this $22.5 billion just in our community, and I'm only speaking for our community here, you'd have to reprofile about 10 or 15% of that money, eliminate the things that are non-liberal expenditures, and put it into the major investments that are liberal. And I do like the poor Charles' view about eliminating uh, the tax plan in fact, I don't think the tax plan was provoked uh, enough. I think that the immediate moment that we start punishing uh, achievers in this country, I think we're going to lose a lot of ingenuity, a lot of energy, and uh, we're going to continue uh, to create an environment that has been created over the last 10 years where the creative process has homeschooled been turned into a whole bunch of people that drives play in their brain. And I think it's time to reverse that. Thank you. You have been listening to The Life of a Servant, a Dennis Mills podcast. Visit DennisMills.com for more information and archived episodes of this program.